Are you interested in leadership? Welcome to the Menzies Leadership Podcast. Tune in for insights and observations about leadership, the challenges and blind spots, attributes and values that you need to lead now and in the future. I'm Liz Gillies, Menzies Foundation CEO and your host today. Let's get started. Professor Genevieve Bell is the director of the 3A Institute, the Florence Violet Mackenzie Chair and a distinguished professor at the Australian National University, as well as a vice president and senior fellow at Intel Corporation. She's a cultural anthropologist, technologist and futurist. Thank you so much, Genevieve, for talking with me today. You're very welcome, Liz. That sounds like I wear too many hats. Well, you do, Genevieve, but (laughs) why I'm so delighted to have the opportunity to speak with you, let me tell you. So it's fascinating to me that you're an anthropologist working at the intersection of cultural practice and technological development. Can you just tell us a little bit about you and your work over the last 20 years and how you came to claim that title? (laughs) That particular space? Of course I can. So I have a, I think under all circumstances, an unusual biography. So I'm an anthropologist by training. I'm also the daughter of an anthropologist. I grew up here in Australia on my mother's field sites in central and northern Australia. So I spent most of my childhood living in Aboriginal communities in the NT. I ran away from Australia to go to university in the United States. I did my undergraduate and my PhD in the States and finished my PhD at Stanford in the late 1990s. And in those days, my area of expertise was Native American studies and uh, critical theory. And it's a really long way, ironically, from (laughs) the anthropology department in Stanford where I was a professor to Intel, where I have spent the better part of the last 20 years working. And in good Australian fashion, I met a man in a bar. But I met a man in a bar in Palo Alto in the late 1990s, and he introduced me to the people at Intel. And at that point, Intel was, as it still is, the world's largest semiconductor manufacturer. Uh, back in the late 1990s, it was basically making the 21st century and the 20th century, right? They were building pretty much all the microprocessors that went into laptops and a whole bunch of other things. And they were the building block supplier of the internet, right? And even at the time, I knew enough to understand that a company like Intel was a place that touched almost everything. And so after a lot of agonizing, and then I think an Australian, a very Australian moment of going, "Ah, I'm just going to do this completely different thing than the thing I'm trained for, because, well, it's a huge opportunity. So I quit Stanford and a tenure track job, and I joined Intel as a junior researcher. And my job at Intel was to help them think about people and to try and make meaning about what people cared about, what they were passionate about, what they wanted for themselves, their kids, their communities, even their countries, and then what frustrated them. So basically, what were their aspirations and their pain points? And could we use all of those insights about what made people tick to drive new innovation at the company? And so I was an experiment in bringing different kinds of people into an organization. Uh, I think I was probably a bit of a different experiment than they anticipated. (laughs) You know, I was an experiment in terms of disciplinary background, so social scientist in a company of engineers. I was an experiment because at Intel, I came from what they lovingly used to call ROW or rest of world, read not America, exactly, ROW from over there. I was a social scientist, I wasn't American, and I was a woman at a time when most of the company was still predominantly male engineers and American ones at that. So I think I was a, um, a big experiment in lots of ways. And for me, it was a, it was extraordinary. Right? The first two years, it was like being in a foreign country. I mean, I didn't understand anything anyone said to me. I barely understood what was going on around me. And yet it was a remarkable invitation to make what I knew about people and what I was passionate about, which is that the world ought to be a better place when you're done with it than when you found it, and that that better should be better for everyone. That is my kind of, I don't know, my moral compass or my North Star, and this set of skills meant that it was an extraordinary place to be. So I spent 20 years as a full-time employee at Intel. My job was always about how did you put people 
into how you did innovation and how did you put what people cared about into the innovation process. I uh, had a whole series of different roles there. I was a researcher. I was a research lead. I ran an advanced R&D team. I ran a development lab. I worked in a business and built product. And my last set of roles there, I helped co-found and co-run Intel's first strategy office. And my job there was as the company's chief futurist or chief foresight officer. So basically the Oracle of Delphi without the dead goats. My job was to work out what would the possible collection of futures that Intel was facing into look like and how did we anticipate where to place our bets and our resources and where to withdraw our resources in order to best meet the challenges that the future would bring. So it was a, um, an amazing set of jobs and a set of jobs I never anticipated when I was a kid or certainly when I was at university or in graduate school. So in the context of all of that and that amazing insight, I mean, in many ways, you sort of created the future as you went along in the way that you described that. So how did you end up at ANU, Genevieve? How did you go from <laughs> Intel to ANU? Uh, that did not involve a man in a bar. Somehow along the way, I learned better. <laughs> so I actually spent part of my childhood on the Australian National University's campus. My mum did her PhD here many, many years ago. And so I, I knew the university. And the vice chancellor asked me, nearly four years ago, if I'd consider coming home. He was wanting to build a new set of programs and bring some different kinds of people into the university. Uh, people who had a background outside of the traditional academic run. And he liked my background because I kind of looked a bit like a public intellectual, but I had a degree. I'd done an R&D. I had a very different set of lived experiences. And he asked me if I would consider coming home. What he didn't know when he asked me that was that I was lucky enough as a little girl to know Nugget Coombs. And Nugget was the first VC of the university. And when Shifley gave Nugget the task of starting the Australian National University. Nugget went around the world with a briefcase <laughs> and letters from the Prime Minister and money and tapped a series of distinguished Australians on their shoulders from the UK to the US. And he said to them, it's time to come home. Oh. And so Brian didn't know when he said that to me that I knew that other story because Brian didn't know that story. So he had no idea that what I heard in my head was Nugget telling me it was time to come home. And so I couldn't say no. So just tell me, so in the context of all of that, and with this opportunity you've got to, in some ways, amplify the future, what does the future look like for you, Genevieve? Oh, listen, I always think the future is a complicated thing. Uh, one of the most wonderful things I think I learned in my time at Silicon Valley is the future is not some abstract destination that we are building towards. It's a thing we actively get to make in the present. And I used to get asked a lot, when it says futurist on your business card, they say to you, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? And I was like, listen, my only relationship to the future is I'm going to build one that I want to live in. And so for me, when I think about what the future might be, I imagine it's an active thing we are building now. And if you'd ask me, what do I hope that future is characterized by? Well, I hope that future is characterized by being safe, sustainable, and responsible. And I hope it's a future or collection of futures in which many people can be. And I would like to imagine that it's a future that feels a little bit more fair than the present in which we find ourselves. And then, you know, specifically, what does that look like in terms of technologies and all those kind of things? Listen, I think that is an endless moving target. There are things that the last six months in Australia has taught us about the future by telling us about the present. So I think if you'd come out of the bushfire season that we had, you would have stood there in January and February and thought, well, wait a second. The whole of the 21st century is predicated on all these technological infrastructures that the last three months have demonstrated aren't as stable as we thought. Electricity, water, telecommunications, roads. And it's also proven to us, again, February 2020, that some of our social organisations are more powerful than we thought. Now, flash forward to May of 2020, what did the last three months teach us about Australia, at least? Well, that in fact, the social contract and the notion of a civic society was actually one of the healthiest things Australia brought into this pandemic. The thing that has been most on our side in some ways was the fact that we, although we see ourselves as individuals, we still believe profoundly and manifestly in a collective. 
we were able to act at a collective level in a way that I don't see happening in some of the other countries I apply my trade and my time. And I think if I think about what might the future look like, the hopeful bit of me says maybe we can imagine a future where civic and civil society still matter and still carry weight as much as the commercial one does and where the kind of technical systems we build reflect that as well as a kind of vision of what's technically possible. And I suspect the same coming out of the bushfire season of this last summer for Australians. The notion of how we think about sustainable futures turns out to be really important too. I think it was really clear to many of us that the cost that we were bearing over last summer might be unbearable. And so how we think about a future that is more sustainable, which I think means everything from how do we think about it in terms of how much we can support, how do we think about it, what terms of technologies we need, what it takes to keep those technical systems running. And then I guess at a meta level, how we imagine those things are interconnected, because one of the things that is so abundantly clear from life and the pandemic would be that the system of systems is a thing we aren't good at talking about. So whether it's the fact that we live inside a very interconnected global supply chain, whether it's about the consequences of that global supply chain, it just strikes me that there's a series of ways we now need to think about the future that might have felt less immediate seven months ago, where they now just feel inescapably true. So supply chain, systems, sustainability, responsibility, and safety all feel to me like whatever the future might look like, it's going to have those characteristics. And so that's a perfect segue into what you've come back to establish, the 3A Institute and its ambition and its aspiration. Can you talk a little bit about how that, I think, really insightful description of the future fits into the work that you're doing at the 3A Institute? Absolutely. So when the Vice-Chancellor at the Australian National University asked me to come home, I told him I couldn't do it unless I could find a challenge big enough. And so he basically dared me to go find something I couldn't think of. Couldn't imagine solving, which is always for me a good motivator. I'm not sure what that says for me as a human. I like the impossible tasks. Give me an impossible task, I'll sign up for it. And I remember calling him and saying, listen, I think what I want to do is build the next branch of engineering because looking at the world I was looking at three years ago and looking at the kind of technical systems that were being built, notably artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence technologies, I was really struck by the fact that we didn't have people who really knew how to design, regulate, run, decommission, or imagine those systems. And that what we had was people who knew how to make pieces trying to make the whole. And so when we established the 3A Institute, really what we were trying to do was create a space in which you could establish a new branch of engineering to take artificial intelligence safely, responsibly, and sustainably to scale. And so for us, that was about how did you imagine training new practitioners? How did you create a new body of knowledge? How do you create a new set of skills? And I'm doing that the only way I know how, which is through rapid experiments, um, experiments in education. So we've created experimental master's program. We have been trying to research it into existence. So go study people that are building next generation technical systems with AI at their heart and work out what the challenges they're having are. And then try and work out what were the big questions that such systems would raise and how did you tackle them? And the name of the Institute at least signals the first of those questions that I knew three years ago, which was... Would those big new technical systems with AI at their core, would those systems be autonomous? A number one. <laughs> would they have agency? Otherwise, put where would their controls and limits be? And how would we think about assurance? So the 3A Institute, the A stand for autonomy, agency and assurance. I think we've come to realise over the last two plus years that you need to add three more questions there. 
which is how will those systems interact with each other and how will we interact with them? What will be the indices or metrics by which we measure whether those successful systems are good or bad systems? And what will be the intentionality of those systems and who gets to manifest that? So happily for me, that means we have three A's and three I's. <laughs> which is always convenient because that way you can remember them. But really the point of the Institute was to do something that sounds, I mean, it sounds crazy. It is crazy to stand up and say, well, we're going to build a new branch of engineering. Go. But that's what we're doing. And the good news is I've collected a small group of totally amazing people who believe that too. And over two successive years, we have recruited completely fabulously, wonderfully, generously, graciously, oh my God, magical collection of students believe that too. We're starting a PhD program in oh, mere minutes or at least months. And I think we've managed to kind of create a little bit of space in Australia for a different conversation. So do I think we've fully established a new branch of engineering? No, but in two and a half years, I wouldn't have expected that. Do I think we've cracked the world open a little bit and made some more room? Yeah, I hope so. And so when you reflect on that and you look at the type of people that this new class of engineers are going to be, what have you learned so far about them? What are the sort of attributes and qualities that you think are going to be important? Listen, that's such a good question, Liz, and it's interesting because it actually speaks back to some stuff that was part and parcel of the conversations we've been having over the last 10 years about what the future of employability would look like, so not work but employability. Mm. And I think one of the things we've been arguing about for a long time was that people's careers would get less linear and more, used to, in America they talk about it as being less like a ladder and more like a children's play, play object, like a, uh, those sort of big balls with the weird lines across them so that it would stop being like this and start being more like this. I often think of it as a, a phenomenon of Australians of my vintage where we've had careers that have had these remarkable pivots in them where we've gone from doing one thing over here to something completely different in a different place. It's sort of that. When I look at the collection of students and staff that are in the Institute, what they have in common is actually what they don't have in common, if that makes sense. So they have incredibly diverse backgrounds. They come from everything from the arts to the sciences to the humanities they come out of law and public policy and medicine. Some of them have PhDs. Some of them never finished uni. They come from all over the world. They range in age from very early 20s to well into their 50s. They've had all kinds of other jobs before they joined us. So I think the thing that characterizes their resumes would be extraordinary diversity and uh, heterogeneity. I think the things they share in common are more in the space about attributes and orientations. So I suspect most of my students and staff would test higher on their capacity to withstand ambiguity, <laughs> or in fact, even not to withstand it. I think I have some of my staff and students who embrace ambiguity and like the space that creates. I certainly have a number of them who have a very strong orientation to change and personal we would think about it as a learning mindset or a growth mindset. I certainly have a series of people who Americans would say were risk takers, by which they just mean people who are doing things that seem unexpected. I don't think of that as being risk taking, but it used to get glossed that way. And I think most of them are probably something you would describe as mission driven rather than um, mm. kind of status acquisitionally oriented. Mm. So most of them want to believe in something bigger than themselves. And I'm a completely guilty of that. <laughs> so... I think if I look at what they have in common, oh, and the other thing, hugely important, hugely important, and we recruited explicitly for it, was people who 
not only functioned well in teams and liked collaborating, but who also were committed to the success of their teammates, not just themselves. And I think we give a lot of lip service to teamwork and collaboration, and we forget that one of the important pieces of that is you also have to be invested in the success of others. It's not just about collaborating, it's hoping that they and working towards your peers being successful, not just you. And then I think, you know, one of the things that's very clear to me as someone who's led a bunch of different teams in very different contexts, is as soon as you have that much heterogeneity, you have an enormous amount of conflict because people come from completely different places and very different kind of ways of expressing themselves and different ways of sort of working through ideas and even having ideas. And so as a leader of a really heterogeneous team, you have to be um, both able to tolerate a bit of conflict and have an ability to create a bit of space that lets that conflict happen in a respectful manner, but that doesn't immediately try to get to an answer, but lets there be a diversity of voices. So For me, that sense of how do you manage beyond diversity to inclusion, and then frankly, over time to getting to a sense of belonging, because it shouldn't just be that people feel included, they should feel like they belong, is an interesting journey to always be on as a leader, but also in an organisation. So, Jenna, you know, it's music to my ears because so many of the things that you've identified, like the heart of the work that the Menzies Foundation does, both in terms of the way that we work and also in terms of the type of leadership capabilities that we're seeing in the incubators that we've that we've built. So in that context and the reason for this conversation today is um, we both, I think, have an interest in a clearer articulation of even what, of what leadership might look like in the context that you've described. Those qualities require a really fundamentally different view of leadership than the sort of hierarchical, heroic leader that perhaps um, has been put up in the past. And in addition to that, I think, you know, the leadership discourse in Australia and and globally is so often negative, Genevieve. So I'm point of our interest in working together and exploring uh, the program that you're suggesting, uh, the systems engineering for leadership program that you're suggesting that we collaborate on together really I think seeks to elevate the leadership conversation in the context of what you're seeing and the work that you're doing and I'm just wondering if you could just spend a few minutes talking about the role that leadership plays in the context of complexity ambiguity absolutely so I come at this from two completely different angles right I was raised with a very strong articulation in my family that you had a moral obligation to make the world a better place and it had to be a better place for many not just for you and that you should be committed with everything time intellectual effort money passion your life if needs be to make sure that world was shepherded into being so for me leadership comes with a moral obligation i think we used to old-fashionedly talk about that as the obligation to service I don't think of this as servant leadership, but that I think that leadership should have a, a moral dimension or at least a moral compass to it. There should be a reason that you're doing it if you want to think about it that way, right? And for me, that reason is that I would like the world to be better than the world I find. I think it is possible to imagine a world that is more fair and more just and more equitable and more sustainable. So like, you know, my activity in my daily life still has that as its kind of moral compass. So for me, leadership has a moral aspect to it. I think increasingly, and you're right, in the 21st century, leadership also has to have this capacity to manage an inordinate amount of complexity. And I think often 20th century leadership, it was about managing that complexity towards simplicity rather than imagining that imagining that complexity is actually itself a system and you need to be able to think about the system. And one of the clear goals of the Institute, I realise now, I'm not sure I knew it three years ago, (laughs) is to actually train people to be able to see the system, to see it at a systems level, 
by which I mean it's often really easy to look at the problem that's in front of you and not think about all the other things that it touches and all the other ways that you might need to handle the moment you find yourself in. So, you know, whether that is if you are leading the country through a pandemic, you suddenly have to realise that your supply chains, plural, include parts of the country that if you shut borders and close air transportation will slow the movement of goods and services. If you change the nature of the border and other people change theirs, you will also slow down goods and services. You discover you'd need to in sort of increase the uptake of certain other technologies so that people could still get their goods and services. You discover all these critical gaps, right? And for those of us who've been in Australia for the last three months, we know that is everything from the, why is there no toilet paper? Where did the pasta go? Oh my God, what about the flour? to the, wait, why is the mail simultaneously slow and fast, also the internet, also, oh, contactless payment, yay, I should download that app. (laughs) That entire bundle of things turn out to be an interrelated system, right? And being able to imagine what is the dimensionality of the system, what are its inputs and its outputs, what are the places you as a leader have capacity to shape, control or change that, And what are the consequences of you doing that on other parts of the system that are invisible to you? Are ways of thinking that some of us do intuitively, many of us do not. And being able to realize that some of the ways we've thought about systems don't work anymore because of some of the fundamental changes in technology. If you look at our colleagues, colleagues, say at Boeing, who I think imagined that the system they managed stopped with the metal and had to realize that there was data flowing through that metal (laughs) that meant that their planes didn't work the way they used to, is a whole different imagining of what it means to be in charge of things. And I think, you know, for many of the leaders I know, It's been about managing multiple sorts of complexity, but also starting to see how that complexity can be made sense of as a system and that what that lets you do then in terms of where you can influence and shape and change and what you need to be responsible for is both, I think, a liberating thing and a terrifying thing. It's like, oh God, all of that too? Ah! (laughs) There's a bit of a moment to go, what tools do I have for doing all of that? So you and I in the past have had conversations about that sort of bound, the boundary spanning aspects of that. The sort of, I'm interested in how you take all that you've said, which seems, you know, so much to ask of a person in many respects as they develop or think about their own purpose and and leadership capability. How do you see that? How are you actually going to teach them to be boundary spanners or to sit in the complexity and the adaptive nature of what you suggest we need to have in order to equip ourselves for the future how how do you think we can help people acquire those that that disposition that skill well listen i think step one is learning how to identify a system and that's harder harder than it sounds but not unteachable. So much the same way there are some of us who are pattern seekers and pattern recognizers, much the way there are some of us who can add up numbers in our head and some of us who cannot even work out how to make the time of day work and work between time zones. You know, any one of us has a set of predispositions, right? I've always thought that was the case. I'm a good pattern matcher. Please don't make me remember certain kinds of things. Um, But, you know, there's certain things I can just do without really realizing it. If you have to teach that, it's a slightly different challenge. My sense is that one of the things we need to do better with our leadership cohort and people who are seeking leadership is be able to identify what a system is and how to think about it that way. So part of it is how do you start to even have the conversation about what is a system and what isn't? And what does it mean to describe something as a system? Good news is there is an entire branch of engineering dedicated to this called systems engineering. And sitting inside many other academic disciplines, there are forms of system mapping that we do, whether that is in fact 
data visualization or in my field, kinship and social organization studies or in economics, economic systems. We have lots of different fields that tell us how to describe a system. It turns out you actually need to pay attention to that. And internalizing that is a little bit of work. I think once you've understood that many things are systems, starting to work out what is a framework or an ontological schema, oh, that sounds scary, but basically what's the, the map of a system? Once you know that, you can start to think about what are the component pieces and what are your choices there as a leader in how you want to manage each one of those component pieces. And so for us, it actually turns out teaching some of that, as banal as it may sound, is hugely liberating to people because once you start to be able to say, here are some tools that every time you encounter a thing, you can start to go, right, is this a system? And if so, which kind? And if it is that kind of system, where are the places I can go do things? And what are a couple of tools that are really helpful when I confront that system for how to start to unpack it? And those tools can be anything from, does it help to articulate all the inputs and be able to start mapping those out? Some of us would remember that. That's called a stakeholder map. <laughs> <laughs> or at least community consultation map. Who do I need to go talk to if I'm going to change this thing? And usually the dimensions of that is an interesting thing. You can think about what are the outputs? Who is my market? Who is my audience? Who are my customers? What is it I'm trying to accomplish? And then you can think about what's going to need to go on in the middle as a result of that. And where do I want to draw the boundaries of the system? Because sometimes it's really tempting to just go, everything is a system, all. It's all a big system. And that doesn't really help. Do you have to go, okay, in this context, I need this bit. So how do I diagram that? How do I communicate it to others? How do I sense check that and make sure that I've understood all the dimensions of the system? And for me, at least, that's why it's always helped to have incredibly robust, diverse teams around me because any one person's vision of what the entire system is is usually not enough. <laughs> and you'll miss something really critical because it just didn't occur to you that that was a thing. And so being able to ensure that your mapping tools and your consultation processes and your ways of engaging with that are helpful are all part and parcel for me about how we do this stuff. And then I think the other thing, because we've done a lot of it in the courses we've been teaching here at the university with our students, is the piece about getting people, we used to laugh about it, right? It's not about how to frame a problem. It's actually how to ask the questions to ensure that you are attacking the right problem. People sometimes say that what engineering is is about solving problems. And I should think what good engineering is is about identifying the space in which there might be a problem that needs a solution. Because by the time you've identified a problem, you've already decided what needs to be solved and frequently it's the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And so being able to frame critical questions and how to deploy those, I think we sometimes call that critical thinking. But for me, it's about critical questions because you need the questions to be able to start to open up an area so that you can work out what to do next. So this pilot leadership program that we're going to collaborate jointly on together, yeah. is going to, which is exciting, is going to start with the premise of what you've observed in your students of this relationship between what they've brought to the master's program that you've developed and then be specifically hone in on how to actually, as an extension of what they've done in their master's program, develop their lead the leadership skill set that, if you like, elevates the work that you've been doing. Is that sort of how you see it? So Liz, I think one of the ways we've been thinking about our master's program is that it's an experiment in two forms, right? It's an experiment because how on earth do you establish a new branch of engineering? Well, you can wait until it was perfectly studied or you can just teach it and see what happens. Mm. And so part of what we've got is now two years worth of teaching master's students and our PhD program starts in June. So that's going to lay on top of it. We've got two plus years of teaching people how to think like this. And coming through that, we have a very clear sense of what does and doesn't work and about how to help people engage with and get better at the notion of critical questioning and also systems level thinking. And so part of, for us, what we've been able to do thus far is in fact distill the best pieces of the course or the pieces of the course that are most able to separate and be pulled out. 
and we have been teaching them as short courses over the last 18 months, I guess. And so for us, it was about how did we both run a credentialing program inside the university, but work out what were the pieces of that that we really wanted to share with other people that couldn't bring themselves to Canberra <laughs> to spend a year and a half with us, but where we thought there were pieces of it that were well road tested at this point and that had been really helpful and successful. And so part of where I'm hoping the 3AI and the Menzies can go together is to take some of those very best pieces and bring them to a different audience. Because one of the things I find are most unexpected about universities is that they don't think of themselves as seed libraries. They think of themselves as something altogether different. And I want to imagine that you make the best stuff and then you share it. And that locking ideas up in a university and expecting everyone has to come there for a degree doesn't feel like to me a very good use of a university's resources. And so for us, it was very much about if we're actually going to build a new branch of engineering, we want to bring everyone along on that journey, not just the people who come here, but the people who will employ the people who come here and the people who are going to have to build the systems and make the key decisions about those systems, not just on the ground, in the boardroom. And so for me, taking the best of what we're teaching here and making it available to a wider group of people is part and parcel of what I take the mission of the Institute to be. And so, Marine, in finishing, the aspiration of your aspiration and the Menzies Foundation aspiration to contribute to the national leadership discourse, both in terms of thought leadership about what leadership in the future is, but also much more importantly, in thinking about how we offer platforms or opportunities or ways to engage in this discourse and actually build that capability really lies at the heart of this proposal and is, I think, uh, indicative of the very nature of the sorts of leadership that you're talking about that we need, multi-sector, boundary-spanning, inquiry-driven. So I'm just so grateful that you found the time to talk to us today, the extraordinary work that you're doing and the way that you're thinking and a very important contribution that you're making. So thank you very much, Jerry. You're very welcome. Thank you.